as a church, we will do what is legally asked of us. We will do that. So when there's the next set of um, advice that comes, that our first step will, will be we'll do what's legal. The second thing we did um, is we'll also try and do what's loving. So I just kind of wanted to name an elephant in the room. Um, I think legally we have to wear masks as we come to church. I think that's right. I think once you're here and you're seated, you are welcome to take them off, but you may also leave them on. Okay, and some of us are, so I've been singing with a mask on, and I, I just want to name that as, actually, it's your call. Um, I'm doing it because when we do have Delta in our mixed, I just don't want to be a spreader. Okay, I don't want to give it to others. But I kind of want to name it because, you know, when there's uncertainty about the kind of stuff, people are kind of, well, should I do, what should I do? Well, actually, I'm saying you get to make some calls on this. It, we're not all uniform about it. That policy might change, okay, because we don't fully know what's ha coming. We know a little bit. I have asked Mike cheekily if you'd just come and model something for a moment, because this is quite cool, especially if you have hearing aids or if you, you're having to wear a mask quite a lot at the moment, aren't you? Yeah. Could you just turn around? Can you see what's at the back? It's a strip of elastic with a button on either side. And you can renew your mask. Isn't that cool? I reckon you could make one of these in a bit of a doddle, and that means that you can also drop it down and have it down in front. Okay, so there's some practicals about masks from someone who doesn't know anything. Hey, we're in um, uh, the second of two. Just um, respond. The elders asked me to respond to three questions, and I uh, obviously took way too long because I um, only got through two of them last week, so this is the third question. Um, but before I do, I wanted to remind us something about what we said last week. Can you remember we talked about five loves and I used a hand? Can anyone remember what those five loves was? What was the first one? Yeah, the first one was that we are loved by God, and it's really important. Okay, and in the light of that, or oh, if I touch this, it'll be, in the light of that, there's that we get swept into a response of loving God. We're called to love others, our neighbours, our spouses, um, our enemies. That one's a bit of an ask. And to love as we love ourselves, which is also at times quite problematic. Um, and then I had this last love for the little finger, which was about being a loving presence and was trying to capture the aspects of love that aren't included in this because they're our relationship with the world around us the stuff matters, and that wherever we are, as Jesus was lovingly present, we get to be that. Yep, so I wanted to remind us of that, and I just, I, I, I am going to briefly refer to this again, this um, quote, a historical expectation of that the church was a community of people joining in God's dreams in a particular place with their everyday lives, and that has stuck with me because as I was going through it, or what we'll get onto it in a moment, um, I was struck by, well, what are God's dreams? And as I've been reading about that, I've been getting excited. And we mentioned the, um, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever is the, something like this. So the question was, the third question is, what is your vision for the future? And as I said, I'm very interested in God's dreams. I'm a little bit more interested in God's dreams than my own because mine are too small. I wimp out. Um, and though you get older happens, the alternative is that you don't get older, um, and that usually involves a ceasing of uh, being, um, you have these dreams and some of them crash, and so you think, well, I won't do that, I won't do it that way, or I, 
And so just again, at Parklands, we love the Bible. I'd like us to read a little bit of scripture. This is from Psalm 72, and I'll read the unbold text, but could you join in reading the text that's in bold? Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish, and peace abound until the moon is no more. This is talking about justice and rightness, things being the way they should be. Prosperity for the people. Judgment for the oppressors. In fact, uh, do you spot the little sort of play on words here? The oppressors, those that press down on people, are going to get crushed. They're going to get pressed down on. And prosperity, not just for the people, but for the hills, care of the land, which rings of climate change. God seems to always be interested in others, in the people who don't have a voice, in the poor, in the needy. This is actually King Solomon's prayer for a king, but it gives us hints of God's dreams for this world, what God is involved about involved and concerned in. And actually, there's a little bit in here for in a world that tends to be, you know, left wing, right wing, there's both the desire for the care for the people, but also prosperity for the people and the hills in, in righteousness and a place that is right. There's, you kind of hear those voices in left and right wing. And then I just wanted to quote one other verse that came up and I think is important to me. And I was thinking about this when I was watching Leon wandering around the church last week. I really enjoyed watching Leon in worship. You know, um, here's another one of God's dreams, because God's dreams are not, are not ageist. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. Okay? A, they're going to get grow to a great age. B, they're still going to have the things of age. They're going to sit, because it's much easier than standing for a long time, and they're going to have their cane in their hand. Now, that may not feel like good news for all, and what are they going to be doing? Well, I suspect they're going to be watching because the streets of the city will be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. And I just loved watching Liam wandering around church in that other space while we sang and thinking, this is good. Part of the ageing thing. Anita has dreamed about trying to get the Move and Groove guys connected with Craft Group because there's something that happens across the generations. And I kind of want to throw out a little bit of a challenge. This is for not next week, but the week after. I'd like you to have a little read in the Bible and look for places where you think it's talking about God's dreams. What's God dreaming for? What does God want to bring? If you, I have found that if you start reading the Bible looking for that, things leap off the page. You don't have to look far, actually. And so my invitation is not this coming weekend is Labor Weekend. Um, 
I'll tell you about that in a moment. But the weekend after that, if you're up for it, I'd like to invite you to come along and bring a short passage, emphasis on short because we want to hear from lots of people, <laughs> and, and why that passage speaks to you about God's dreams. What is it that kind of goes for ting for you? Does that make sense? I think the more the merrier, which hence the emphasis on small. It's partly to remind us that God has dreams for the future. Um, next weekend is Labor Weekend. Um, what we typically do on Labor Weekend is we get together with a power Baptist in Oxford Terrace and we do something collectively, but there are a few technical problems with that, aren't there? If we have more than 100 people, and I know lots of people go away with Labor Weekend. Um, it, so uh, this last week, we... And we were going to have Kim Peters, uh, the Canterbury Western RML speak. So this week we have recorded him speaking and had someone from each of the three churches ask a question or had a little panel afterwards, and we'll play that for Labor Weekend. Okay, just because we wanted to do something that has that interconnection, we think there's something precious about knowing it's not just us. We're traveling with others. But the weekend after that, I'd love us to be reminding ourselves of God's dreams and I'll try and remind you of that next week. Answering this question is a little bit tricky for me. In uh, my absence, the elders have been working on a vision statement. There's some crossover here, but I was asked to respond to three questions. So I'm going to notice places where there are links, but I'm not going to try and do this because that's, uh, there's a process there that I'm catching up on. Okay, what's your vision for the future? I want to talk about three things that have seemed to be important to me. And the first one has an obvious crossover um, to the vision statement the elders have been working on. Um, I'm really keen on discipleship. Growing followers of Jesus. I, I like to think of it as journey, or faithful following is probably what I like most. And that's why we've stolen that stage from the early Baptists to, to, for membership to ask, will you walk in the ways of Jesus, those made known and those not yet, those yet to be made known. Because the early disciples... I don't know that they went thinking I'm going to become a disciple and that everything that's going to happen here is going to shape me because if they did, they're thinking just about themselves. No, they want to spend time with Jesus. And then stuff happens and they keep talking about how does that connect with the kingdom of God? And I think most discipleship is actually conscious decisions about this is what's happening in my life. This is what the kingdom of God is like. What happens when those two things come together? Conversations around that. I don't think it's a solo act. The disciples did not follow Jesus one by one. They went as a group. And so how would you do discipleship well here? Well, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd get everybody to have at least one person that they meet with regularly and have a conversation about this is how it's going. Awfully like how's your week been. But how does that connect with the kingdom of God? What is God doing? I don't want to shout out for Kieran, who's not here, but for the youth leaders, who all of which I think have a mentor that they meet with now. That is stunning. That regular conversation, even when you don't, and maybe especially when you don't have the easy answers. I wish everybody had that, but if you didn't have that, I'd like you to have a couple, three or four people that you met with regularly to have the conversation How's your following of Jesus going? I often refer to a couple I knew in Wellington who ended up both in really well-paying jobs. And they, so they ended up with a lot more money than they ever planned on. And they made an arrangement to once a year they would meet with another couple 
and they would go through their finances with that other couple. And they would say, we want you to ask us the question, is the way we're spending our money reflecting the kingdom of God? I just think that's stunning. So I think one-on-ones... Oh, shout out to David Broughton, who might watch this online. David has spent his life meeting people one-on-one to have conversations of discipleship. Big ups, David. And then, oh, well, there are... There, you can do this in a life group. You can do this with sort of six, seven, but you have to be able to be honest and to do, have discipleship conversations. Well, I think you kind of need to have some interaction with the Bible. And let me, can I just tell you why? Where, well maybe you're not, but I'm self-obsessed. The thing that I know best is me. And without meaning to, I will make everything about me. It's really easy to do. In fact, if I can, I will remaster my worldview to make it the most comfortable for me. I want to be the hero of my story. That's my innate remote control setting. So two things can help me get out of that. One thing is I can talk with someone who is not me, and that's really helpful because I hear their perspective and I go, hang on, that's not quite right. And I actually think it's the reading of a Bible. Here we have a text that is outside of ourselves. It's even outside of our time. And it's awkward and angular. You ever found that? You read this book, you read a psalm or a proverb, and you think... I really don't know what this person's talking about. No, you never have that problem. It's because it's not caught up into our world. It's caught up into God's world. And then it's different and sometimes jarring is a gift because actually, have you met self-obsessed people? I'm hoping I'm not one of them. They're awful. <laughs> they, you know, the world doesn't. They need somehow to get something from outside they need God, and I think the Bible is one of the ways we, it, it happens. I'll include prayer in that. I think it rescues us from our self-obsessions. So discipleship, conscious conversations with others about the reality of how things are in your life. And, and how does that look like as a follower of Jesus? Yep. That was easy, isn't it? Now, I have been very shaped by this. I don't know if anybody's seen this book, The Patient Ferment of the Holy Church, of the Early Church, lately. It's a, it's a relatively recent book. It talks about how the early church grew and the weird thing about the early church growing. And the weird thing is this. They didn't talk about missions. They didn't quote, quote Matthew 28. In fact, they did. When they did, they did it to talk about baptism. They didn't talk about missions. Their, their big concern, they thought... You know, the toughest thing for someone being a Christian is what they know before they're a Christian is they know their culture. And as soon as you ask them to be a Christian, they're going to be having to try and change from this culture to another. So they put lots of energy into discipling the Christians. And then he observed, this book observes about what was important in that. And the first thing he, this guy says is the early Christians, when they had a chance to talk about anything, what they talked about was patience. They thought that patience was crucial because they said God's at work. Therefore, we have to trust that God is at work. We don't have to force it. So therefore, we'll wait to see what happens then. They thought it was God's baby. But then the second thing is the thing that I find just astonishing. They said, and therefore, if we're following Jesus, we should live differently. They had a word for it back then. They talked about habitus, how you physically live. 
And when there were arguments in the early church with non-Christians about what is this, um, uh, they tended not to be intellectual. The Christians predominantly said, well, look at how we live. Their behavior was distinctive. Now, why am I telling you that? See, I think if we're genuinely being followers of Jesus, it's really attractive, but we have a problem, which brings me to the second point. Ah, I don't know the right language for this, okay? Forgive me. In the early church, people lived mostly in settings a little bit like this. I don't know if you can see. There's a couple of figures running around here. They lived in, most of the poorer people lived in rented apartments. Well, kind of apartments, except it wasn't families per se, you'd have a bigger family in. Essentially, you could think of it like um, a Brazilian slum. And, and the gist of it is, you're all living in on top of each other, so if your neighbour starts behaving differently, you know. It's really visible. They were very visible. And this is one of the reasons they think the early church grew, is that people could see, these guys are living this way, and it's really attractive. That's quite cool, don't you think? What do you think our challenge is? Well, I've said from campfire, which is where I think they lived. You know when you go, in, uh, when you go tenting and there's campfires, you're gathered around, you can see what's going on, you can see what your neighbours are doing? Yep. Well, we got grabbed by the American dream, which is your own house and a section and no, tall, tall fences. And these cars, once you're in a car driving down the road and you see someone you know, what do you do? You keep driving. Because you're in the car. It's going too fast to stop to pull over. It's the interesting thing about riding a bike or going for a walk. You see someone you know, you stop, you say hi, it's easy. The American dreams put us in these bubbles and our neighbours don't see us because we're hidden behind tall fences and in our cars. You know, you don't even... So, how many people here can get into their car and drive to work without even stepping outside? We just go from one bubble to another. It's really nice on a winter cold day, isn't it? So I don't think our fundamental challenge as Christians is that people aren't living a Christian life. I think it can't be seen. It's invisible. Now, in their setting, everybody could see how they lived and they lived differently. I think our challenge is, well, how can we live differently and be seen? And I think this has to do with relationships, with more campfires. I think this has to do with common life. In the churches at the moment in New Zealand, you'll see quite a number of churches playing with intentional communities. Anyone seen one? Presence-based communities? Southwest Baptist? Wellington Diocese? No, silence. These are examples where they're getting larger groups living together. Now, it's a bit of an ask because you're going to sell your house and move into one of these, and, uh, well, that's not the only option I reckon the answer here, and I've talked about it before, is meals together. Okay? And here we go. Everybody here eats together. Uh, everybody here eats, don't you? Usually three times a day during lockdown, more often than that. <laughs> so somebody has to cook. Yep, get the food together. And I, asked, I was at the craft group and I asked, who here loves cooking? Do you know how many hands were raised? None. Okay? Somebody has to cook. And you know, it's really not harder to cook for four people than it is two. It's actually not a lot harder to cook for six people than it is 
four or two. It's not hard. Somehow we've got in our culture that eating together with someone, well, if you're going out to their meal, what do you have to do to go to someone's places for a meal? Well, Kiwis, you have to take something, right? How long is it going to take? Well, we're going to have a meal with them, and then what's going to happen? Well, we have to find some way to spend time for the next two or three hours. That's the deal if you're invited to someone to meal. Is that right? But it doesn't have to be. You can just eat with someone and then go do something else. You can make it smaller. You don't have to put on the best of food. So a number of the people, Christians, who are responding to this problem saying, well, first and foremost, we need to be eating with people, with people who know Jesus and people who don't, and make it possible. We need to do this because in our age, we don't trust institutions. We trust people that we know. That's part of the background of the nervousness about vaccines. Do, do I really love Pfizer as a corporation? It's a corporation. I trust people. And the way to get to know people is to be present, and a big part of that is eating together. Churches love to say, we want to do ministry to the poor. And a very famous missionary said, that's all very well and good, but do you know their names? What are their names? And what are your na- is the, their names is a great question. Do you love your neighbours? What are their names? When was the last time they ate together? I, I want to give um, a brief true illustration. Um, my daughter and son-in-law, Eleanor and Ethan, who some of you will know as um, they are youth pastors at Grace Vineyard, they have a house behind uh, in a back section. And they had their neighbour over for a meal, oh, let's say, three months ago. And you know, then um, probably a month ago, um, look, the dates are, are iffy, um, their neighbour came to them and said, I've been thinking about you, I'm the front section. I should really be keeping an eye on your section to see if any burglars get here. But he said, I realised I can't do that. Oh, they said, why is that? Well, because there's so many people in and out of your house. I wouldn't know who's a burglar. And then he said, I thought a bit more. And I thought, you know, if I saw someone walking down the driveway and they had a microwave, and I asked them, what's that microwave doing in your hands? And they said to me, Eleanor and Ethan gave it to me. I thought, well, they probably did. (laughs) That story really speaks strongly to me because the neighbour saw how they were living and sees that it's different. And that's how the early church grew. I think that's because the God, the Christian God, Trinitarian God, is a God of relationships, and relationships win. The call to follow God is about relationships. And actually, if we're to be a good church together, we have to have relationship together. We have to have some common life. And I think the same thing is true when we start talking about mission. It is fundamentally relational. And that's really difficult for us because our lives are so segmented and compartmentalized. Our lifestyle is to cut ourselves off from others. We live in houses by ourselves. We don't eat with others. Now, I occasionally say I don't want to over-egg this. We have, uh, Linda and I have been in the habit of trying to eat a meal together with some people in our neighbourhood regularly. And listen, we don't stay the whole evening. We cook. And it, look, it reduces the number of times I have to cook, which is me and Linda, which we love. 
Um, and actually, you get to know people because in that setting, we're less agendered. So practically, what does that mean for us? I want to be practical in this case. The, the discipleship question is just simply a question of who do you honestly talk about following Jesus and your life and how they connect or don't? Everybody should have at least one. I think probably we should have many. Okay, that's practical. The practical for this one is to say, in a church setting, uh, that's why we've pushed tea and coffee. Hard to do in COVID days. That's why we've tried soup and buns. We want to get us eating together. Who here have you invited for a meal? Shall we go out for lunch afterwards? You may not be able to do it here, but you know Beach Cafe? Is the library open? You all know there's a new ca uh, cafe in the library? Yep. The practice of eating together becomes really crucial. And more than one discipleship book lays down a challenge that says this. Every day, or at least twice a week, eat with someone else. Eat with the people who aren't your default. Okay. So that was the first thing I talked about was discipleship and following Jesus and conversations about where, and I hope prayers, about where our lives are, what's going on in them, and what does following Jesus look like. The second thing I've talked about is life in common meals together. Some of that's just fun. And how can we be visible in this? And the last thing is, also has a link to the vision statement, has to do with serving. And this is something that struck me when I was away. Here it is. In community development, there's basically two ways of approaching it. There's a needs-based way and a gift-based way. And the needs-based way looks like this. You find a problem to solve, you create a program to solve that problem, you get a professional, maybe a minister, to manage it, and the people that you're dealing with are essentially consumers. Yep. Now, there's some real strengths to that model. It's very clear, on the, uh, uh, clear measurable, you can see, um, you can define a problem, there's a whole bunch of steps to it. It's... And then there's a gift-based community development model that looks like this. You start with people, you try and grow relationships, you find the things you can that encourage those, and the key difference for me is this thing. Now, I want to say a shout out to the craft group. The craft group, two or three years ago, we provided all the food, we set everything up. Craft group now, people are bringing the morning tea. I'll just bring some biscuits along. They have just made a shift from this, a consumer of help to being a citizen of promise. That defines something about my understanding of church. Oh, and by church, at no time am I talking about this 90 minutes. I'm trying to talk about church, the group of people. If we start, I'm not saying we should not pay attention to need, but if you start with need and it becomes the strident voice then it will push you in this direction. I think the picture, the way God works with us, is that our salvation and everything else is gift. Our personality is gift. I think we have things to do that are our gifts to people around us. And I think we need each other in that mix. I wish that I was a brilliant administrator, coordinator, because this is kind of what it requires. 
plug for employing someone in that world. We start from a place of giftedness. We have enough to do what the next step is. Maybe not enough to do everything. And remember, this is not about prosperity doctrine. You don't have... God is not necessarily going to give you a five-course meal and a Tesla every day, much as it might be nice to have. But you have enough. We have enough. Enough to give to others. And in that giving, there's often a receive back. It's a building of relationships. I'm pretty passionate about wanting to grow a church that's about serving and gift. Back to God's big picture. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me to bring plain good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is about saying, this is what God is doing. This is what Jesus says is at the synagogue. This is what I believe is part of God's dream for the future and ours. But to do this, to proclaim good news to the poor, I'm going to need to know their names. Actually, I'm going to need to know their stories. And if they're going to trust me, they're probably going to need to know my story. It's a deeply relational task. That's what I think we're called to. If you think this isn't particularly well through of a sermon, thought through as a sermon, yeah, you're probably right. Three things I've talked about. Passionate about people following Jesus, doing that together, comparing notes, looking to see what God is doing. I'm passionate about having life in common, meals, building relationships, and I'm passionate about trying to approach things from a gifted point of view. What are we gifted with? What can we do from that? How does that match up with the needs? Not starting solely with the needs. And some of this is a self-reflection. I haven't done it very well. I've spent more time on process, more time in my office than I would like. So I'd like to see if I can change that. I'm going to pray. There's going to be a song, so I can have the team come up. And what are we going to sing? At the cross. We're going to sing at the cross, and there'll be a benediction. And then we'll get up and awkwardly go, oh, mask, and we're still not serving tea and coffee. Um, we are, would really like to start serving tea and coffee. We believe we can legally do it, but we do need people to help. So if you are capable of once a term helping us in the kitchen, or owning it, we would love to have you there. Yep. Do not forget there's a visioning evening tonight at 7.30? Sorry? At 7 o'clock, we'd love to have you here. Your voices and stories, our voices and stories, are really important as we piece together forward. God, what are you calling us to? Here's my prayer. God, you still have big dreams for this world, and they are positive dreams. You want to see the poor excited about the good news. You want to see freed, uh, prisoners being set free. You want to see the blind opening their eyes. You want to see the oppressed being freed from that oppression. Because you love us and we live in the year of your favor. And we struggle with knowing how, to look, how that looks. So we pray for moments when people may see in our lives our faith made visible. 
when people like Jill can someone say, tell me more about this. We pray for good friendships with people around us who are different and can bring riches to our lives. And we ask that your Holy Spirit go before, with, and behind us as we walk into this world you so deeply love. Amen. Thanks, Kelly.